wielding maniacs, and welcome back to season six of Horror Palooza, the horror podcast that rises at night for more than just a bite. <laughs> we are deep into my yearly horror marathon. We watch 31 horror movies for each day in October, and I've just wrapped up watching movies number 15 through 21. I'm here to discuss them, review them, and maybe give some facts and trivia about them as well. That's what just that's what we do here. So, of course, if you're just joining me now, I have to tell you, these movies are not picked at random. Oh, no. I have rules I have to follow to ensure that I watch a fascinating spread of cinematic shocks and silver screen shivers. And those rules are as follows. Rule number one, can't watch any film I've seen in the last five years. Rule number two, at least three of the movies I watch in my marathon must be in a language besides English. Number three, at least two films from every decade. So that's pre-1940s to the present. 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, etc. You get the idea. Two films from every decade. That's a lot of movies. I, at number four, I can't do multiple films from the same franchise or they count as one movie. Number five, they've got to be horror movies and I have to defend them as such if they're on the fringe. And finally, of course, this year, I've got to watch at least one punk rock horror film from every one of those decades. Punk rock, it's our theme this year and it's been a, whew, it's been a rough one so far, but come on, if it, were, if it were easy, that wouldn't be fun. Now, would it? So, just as a refresher for this year, so far I've watched Curse of the Werewolf from 1961, The Wolfman from 2010, Return of the Living Dead 3 from 1993, The Dunwich Horror from 1970, Alone in the Dark from 1982, The Conjuring 2 from 2016, and Infinity Pool from 2023, and then in week two, I moved on to Arachnophobia from 1990, Truth or Dare, A Critical Madness from 1986, Skidamarink from 2022, also from 2020, I uh, see from 2002, we had Uzumaki, uh, we had The Hideous Sun Demon from 1958, The Abominable Dr. Fives from 1971, and Talk to Me from 2023, this very year. So, that leaves quite a few holes left to fill in my list of rules. I've got to fill my quota for the number of decades. I've got at least two more foreign language films to cover. But before I dive into this week's movies, you know the deal. Do me a favor. Check me out on Instagram as Sir Ian Dangerous. Check out the band that wrote the theme song for the show, The Tiki Creeps, at tikicreeps.com. And of course, my sound designer, 414 Beg. The number four, the number one, the number four, B-E-G on Instagram. He makes some just absolutely beautiful music that he posts there. And he makes some horrifying music. And you may have heard his music in a horror movie or three. So check them out. Hit me up and let me know what you think of my reviews. I've got feedback buttons on the episode. So hit a brother up. Let me know your thoughts, your reactions, your opinions. Let me hear it. And of course, like, share, subscribe, review, all that good social media stuff. And now... That the business is out of the way, on with the show. Let's talk about what I watched this week. The first movie of the week, 2023, Smile. It is currently streaming on Prime, Amazon Prime, FUBU, MGM, Paramount. You can rent it everywhere. Uh, it's one of the early successes, the horror successes at the box office for 2023. 
And it's honestly right out the gate. I'll tell you this. It's far from the worst horror film you could see this year. It has a pretty solid basic horror hook. Big dead eyed smiles are creepy as fuck. And it uses, it uses our innate and subconscious fear of the unnatural grin, the rictus grin to ring out some really hair raising moments, usually done very well by the actors involved to the point where I truly wasn't sure if the actor's expressions did all the work or if there was some CGI enhancement to some of these, these, these big creepy smiles in this movie. But uh, sadly, I cannot speak entirely glowingly about the film because I really did find some fundamental problems with the movie. And at the end of the day, it just didn't quite click all the way with me. Why is that? Well, let me start with the performances. Off the top, the main character of Rose is played by Kevin Bacon's little girl, Sosie Bacon. Uh, she's all grown up and she's excellent. She's really solid for the most part. Although there are a few scenes where she struggles with some awkward and unconvincing dialogue and some fellow actors who aren't exactly helping her with their performances. But let me be clear, she's very good overall and the movie would not work without her being so exposed and, and raw and vulnerable, really letting us see her trauma, which is the core of the film. But honestly, it's her supporting cast that's hit and miss. It's not entirely their, their fault. As I said, the dialogue by writer-director Parker Finn, based on the short film he made dealing with the same subject, is it's fine in some scenes, but it is brutally awful and unnatural in others. Uh, there's some of the secondary characters are written with incredibly broad strokes and some moments feel like like a bad 90s rom-com level of forced cliche dialogue and and flat obvious personalities. Um, Rose's sister is mostly a caricature of a Karen. Her husband is a cartoony doofus and Rose's fiance is a flat unrelatable mess due to his fluctuating motivations and the flimsy and somewhat shrill performance by Jesse T. Usher, who he feels like he's, he's got it, he's present in some scenes, but in others, he acts at like, I hate to say it, like a high school theater level. And he really drags Bacon down with him in a particularly essential scene arguing outside of a car. You'll know, you'll, trust me, you'll know it when you see it. It's not good. Um, and it's not like Parker Finn is incapable of writing or directing. There are some scenes particularly between Bacon and her former love interest, Joel, played with a really nice, quiet firmness by Kyle Garner from Victoria Mars, or Veronica Mars, excuse me, in Smallville. Um, it, it really shows an, a, an understanding of chemistry and connection. But overall, it's, it's just uneven. Sometimes playing things too broadly to be believable, which undermines the central concept. And, and you know, if you're going to make a movie about an entity that infects people and kills them after four to seven days, but makes them smile at someone else right before they die, and that someone is next to be infected and die, like, like a virus. You're already on the back foot as far as believability. I mean, first of all, it is a bit of well-trodden ground. It's a, it's a bit of the, the ring uh, with some aspects of it follows as the creature stalks its prey. Uh, some dashes of moments caught from other movies uh, like Grave Encounters and Noroi, but it's it's basically what I'm saying is that a lot of things we've seen before. So we're expecting as an audience, we're expecting certain moments to happen. And we have like a cultural zeitgeist level of understanding of what the trajectory of the story is going to be. So if something happens along that, 
predictable path that doesn't exactly blow our socks off. It's easy to just to, to not believe it, to laugh it off. Uh, and that's, that's kind of ironic in a movie about killer smiling demons and smiley death curses because it's also really easy for that concept to be goofy. And, for, and there are some moments in this movie that are meant to be serious and they fall kind of hollow and they don't connect. Uh, thank God for Sosie Bacon forcing us through her performance and sheer will to keep us grounded with her because there are a number of moments that, depending on your state of mind coming into this, could easily play as camp or comedy or, worst of all, just are dumb. Uh, there's a party scene where things go south for Rose and it goes south so quickly, so predictably, but also so over the top that it is slapstick levels of hilarious. Not to mention, at the heart of the scene is a dead cat that is so obviously a stuffed animal <laughs> that Stuart Gordon's reanimator cat wants a, it wants a paycheck. And I'm pretty sure for some people that scene would be the end of taking this movie seriously. As soon as you see reanimator cat's evil brother, uh, especially since it happens kind of early on in the movie. And, and if you know where things are going after that, as I think most of us do, it, it's easy to check out and just not care anymore about the potboiled drama of trying to lift this curse that the rest of the movie's runtime entails, especially given the awkward scenes and dialogue I mentioned earlier, people overreacting to events or making just brain-dead horror movie decisions that lead you, they leave you with your face in your hands. And... I hate to keep ragging on Parker Finn here, but dude, you only get one inverted landscape shot of film. <laughs> it's, it's obnoxious. It doesn't serve the story. Flip your camera around. It's just a camera move that makes you look fancy and that people haven't done a lot before. Now everyone's doing it. Uh, he also relies on unnecessary camera moves and transitions just way too often as well. I mean, let's say you take away one tracking shot that pushes in through a window into a room or a pullback shot that goes through a door, like a little door window, right before the people you're pulling back from open it. And you have the whooshy sound effect at all, you know, like whoosh, through the door. The money you save on those unneeded digital effects and editing tricks could have bought you a better dead cat, maybe. I mean, you don't get five scenes where you pull the sound all the way down, only to give us a stinger that nearly clips the sound meter just to get an undeserved jump scare. Dude, you have enough good material here. You don't need the extra bells and whistles. There's a bunch of really good get-under-your-skin chills in this movie that stand out from the moments that don't work. The concept of the final confrontation is really disturbing, and it starts off well. The practical effects are fantastic, but then one bad digital effect at the end takes what should be a gut-wrenching moment of horror, and it makes it kind of funny. And not in the disturbing Joker, Rick this smile kind of way, but in the, oh, fuck you kind of way. It, <laughs> it's, it's like, oh, come on. It checks you out of a promising movie, a promising concept, and it wastes Sosie Bacon's great performance on some clunky execution. Smile did really well at the box office. I'm actually genuinely happy it did because as much as I've been ragging on it here, it is better than a lot of horror movies that come out. I guess I'm frustrated because I see how close it was to being better, how little would have to be tweaked to make it more effective, more connecting, more engaging. Because as much as the concept of unresolved trauma being dealt with is done in an armchair psychologist's shallow way, it is a concept 
that is wonderfully fertile ground, especially juxtaposed with the iconography of forced happiness. There's something chilling to the idea of the destruction of the self as a result of the consumption by traumatic feelings, which manifest as an outward rictus grin. And I feel like there's a good story to be told in this world and with these concepts as derivative as some aspects of them are. So this is Parker Finn's first movie and it shows, and I'm definitely, I'm going to admit I'm spoiled by some other first time directors I've seen this year and they, some of them knock it out of the park. But as I said, Smile was a success. Finn will be back. Sequels are no doubt on the way. I truly do hope he leans into his strengths and works through his deficits, and we see him grow as an artist. Again, Smile isn't a home run, but if you hit a solid double or triple on your first at bat, that's nothing to sneeze at. And Smile will work as a horror movie for a lot of people. It's just good basic horror. It just it lacks the finesse and the fine touches, the elegance and the incisiveness that only the best horror truly has. Coming up second, we have Dracula's Daughter from 1936, going way back into the early days of Universal Monsters. Uh, it is a forgotten gem from the mid-30s about the daughter of the famous Count himself. I mean, kind of a daughter. It's never really clearly explained if she's a biological daughter or a daughter by vampirism, but my suspicion tends toward the latter. So if you haven't heard of this movie, it's not surprising. It's often a footnote in the history of the Universal's Dracula franchise as it came at the end of the first cycle of Universal monster movies, just before Universal gave up on horror during the early days of World War II. After the first Dracula movie, uh, in 1931, they had Frankenstein, and then 1932, The Mummy came out, and then uh, in 1933, The Invisible Man, and then Bride of Frankenstein in 1935. But in 1936, Universal's contract for the Dracula property was due to expire, and they wanted to make a movie to keep the intellectual property and franchise going, so they rushed this. Uh, it was originally slated for direction by Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein's legendary director, James Whale, but the director's chair went to an agreeable journeyman named Lambert Hillier, known more for westerns and melodramas, but also coming off decent successes, uh, such as the early horror film The Invisible Ray. But he lacks Whale's operatic scope and original Dracula director Todd Browning's vision. And he also didn't have the eye for staging that the original Dracula's shadow director, Carl Freund, had. Uh, Browning famously was AWOL for a lot of Dracula's filming, and Freund, who had also directed the all-time classic Metropolis, took over the reins for much of the shoot of Dracula. Freund didn't come back for the sequel, however, and Hillier instead had George Robinson to work with, who's no slouch by any accounts, and he's a cinematographer who had actually worked under Freund on the first Dracula, but he's just not quite at the same level as his predecessor. You can see it in Dracula's Daughter's final form, that it was done competently with some sharp setups and beautiful atmospheric moments, but it lacks that slight jump from great to brilliant. And it also suffers from that quick run into production. With those right, run, rights running out and no better ideas, Universal decided to go with a concept that was a little bit harebrained. It was uh, supposedly from a deleted prologue chapter of Bram Stoker's original Dracula novel, but it bears more lineage really 
with fellow gothic horror novel Carmilla, which predates Stoker's novel Dracula by 26 years. Carmilla was also mined heavily by Hammer Horror, and if the name Mirkala Karnstein rings a bell from movies like The Vampire Lovers, Lust for a Vampire, uh, Twins of Evil, it's due to that name being the name of the main antagonist vampire in Carmilla. And Universal apparently liked the idea of a female vampire, and so here we get Dracula's daughter. It starts literally seconds after the first Dracula movie ends with Van Helsing, now Von Helsing for some unknown reason, still kneeling over Dracula's coffin after having put a stake through his chest. Renfield's body is still at the bottom of the stairs, and two broadly bumbling policemen stumble into this scene to try to figure out what the fuck just happened. Uh, Von Helsing is brought up on murder charges, as you can understand, because he was found having staked the... I mean, he admits to it. He's like, yeah, I staked him. Uh, to everyone else, though, Dracula was just like a well-known, well-liked foreign aristocrat. So he's Van Helsing, excuse me, Von Helsing is in trouble, uh, but he leaves it up to his protege, prickly but capable psychiatrist Dr. Garth, to clear his name. Now, Garth, of course, originally doesn't believe in vampires, and it looks like Von Helsing will hang or be sent to an asylum. But then Dracula's body disappears, and a mysterious and beautiful woman appears in town, socializing with the elite, and in particular becoming fascinated with Dr. Garth. So Dr. Garth believes in a process by which people can overcome their darker urges. And this beautiful foreign woman has a need of such a process because she's Dracula's fucking daughter. Her name is Countess Maria Zaleska, and she's played fucking amazingly well by, by Gloria Holden, who had a decent career, but never really shown on the screen more than she does here. She's exotic, austere, vulnerable, powerful and complex and and she plays Zaleska like an aristocrat but also like a sad desperate woman on a mission she no longer wants to be a vampire and she doesn't want to be under the control of Dracula anymore the scene where she exorcises and disposes of his corpse is chilling but it's also fascinating watching a vampire use a cross on another vampire and salt as well while not being able to look directly at the cross it's a it's a cool, unusual moment in this kind of movie. And the way she plays it is serene and collected, but still careful and intense. Her eyes are incredible. And one would have to imagine that the casting was done with that in mind, especially given how incredible Lugosi's work with his eyes was known to have been. I mean, Universal may not have liked working with Lugosi for some reason no one has ever been able to fully understand or explain conclusively, but they were certainly under his shadow in later movies, whether they knew it or not. And Dracula's daughter, though surprisingly good, sadly never really reaches the peaks of the original Dracula, even if it is less stagey and more energetic than that movie. Uh, it has, among other things, it has a truly awful romance subplot with Dr. Garth having some sort of love-hate relationship with his secretary, which I guess we're supposed to take as cute that they obviously care for each other, but they show it by acting like quarreling children. Uh, I mean, he's so vicious to her without a twinkle at all in his eyes, and she's so catty to him that it just seems odd and or disturbing when we finally start to see them easily fall into some sort of romance. 
I mean, it may have been, this movie may have been 90 years before this concept was a common phrase, but theirs is the definition of a toxic relationship. Um, other things that I had a problem with, there's, there's a lot of comedy here in this movie, some of which works well and isn't too incongruous, but some of which is just weird in a movie like this. I mean, I get that they were trying to entertain the audience as well as give them chills, but it's definitely tonally uneven, and the kind of comedy they use is so broad that it just seems it seems forced sometimes. But what Dracula's daughter does, interesting, that it's, it's, it wasn't touched again for a while. It's the idea of a female vampire with all that entails from a sexual standpoint, especially given that vampires had had and still have an underlying air of forbidden sexuality. Uh, of course, it's not, not every vampire, like certainly not Nosferatu or Kurt Barlow or any of the shark-faced vampires from 30 Days of Night, but certainly throughout history, vampires have represented an opposition to morality. They stood opposed to the church, to God, to sanctity, to piety, purity. They represented darkness, craven desires, and animalistic passions and actions. And in the novel Carmilla, the main vampire is clearly interested more in women than men. And while Dracula represented an ideal of a tall, dark, handsome, sexy, foreign man and all the strange desires that might awaken in Victorian or post-Depression women, Mirkala Karnstein and her filmic descendant Maria Zaleska both may represent a hidden desire uh, among women to desire another woman that might exist uh, in those same repressed, supposedly vulnerable women of those eras. Uh, there's a scene in Dracula's Daughter where Zaleska seduces and murders a young female street worker. And it's the best scene in the film, with Zaleska trying to hold off from her hunger for blood while the frightened girl does as she's told and begins to strip down, supposedly to let Zaleska paint her. It's fascinating on multiple levels, both as a character study and a social study. And it's also just a chilling, scary scene as well. There's nothing else in the Universal Monster canon that comes close. And although Universal was down to sell this film based on lesbian undertones and the titillation that comes along with that, the movie itself never really gives in to that kind of exploitation. It does everything a little bit more clear-eyed and matter-of-fact, and it's up to us to read in any kind of subtext that we want to put on it, uh, and does so really well without coming to, I think, any judgmental conclusions about its characters based on that. Fascinating. So why has this film fallen through the cracks. Is it because of the legacy of Lugosi's iconic take on that role? I mean, Lord knows that Lon Chaney Jr.'s Son of Dracula or the two times that John Carradine played the role in House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula, they didn't measure up. Is it because this film is ultimately somewhat unsatisfying in its final moments or that there just isn't anything in this movie that feels iconic on its own merits? I mean, I love several scenes with Zaleska in this movie, but aside from the scene with the street girl, I, I couldn't tell you why I felt they were great. They don't really stick that much in my mind. Lugosi had such memorable lines in his movie, but sadly, Zaleska's best one-liners in this are just echoes of that script. Oh, I never drink wine. It's a sequel that lives fully in the shadow of its all-time classic forebear. It just 
doesn't quite measure up. And that and the fact that Universal reset the timeline after World War II just means that Dracula's daughter gets relegated to the dustbin of vampire history. And it's a shame because it's actually quite good despite its flaws. It's very watchable. It's very unusual. And it really is worth digging through that dustbin just to pull it out and to enjoy. Coming up next, we've got the 17th film of 2023 for me. It is from 2020. It's called Come True. It's streaming on Hulu, AMC, Shudder. You can rent it on Amazon, Vudu, Apple, Google, etc. You know the deal. So I watched Come True because I was intrigued by its concept. It's a low-budget indie sci-fi horror film from Canada. It sounds good on paper. I thought it had a lot of places to go with its premise. Come True is about a young girl who's run away from troubles at home and is having trouble sleeping. As you can understand, given that she's taken to sleeping on slides in parks and crashing on her friend's floors in between days of finishing high school. So she signs up for a sleep study to satisfy a bunch of her needs, such as a regular place to sleep, but also an answer to her creepy dream-filled nights of half-rest and also a little extra cash. The sleep study, however, turns out to be a highly experimental study that aims to decode why sinister glowing-eyed figures pop up in people's dreams all over the world. And as you can imagine, given the genre and the subject matter, shit gets weird. So, so far, so good. Sarah, the young girl, is played with a fragile intensity by Julia Sarah Stone, who is very good, but sadly stops having much to work with here after about halfway to two-thirds of the way in. One of the people studying her is a guy named Jeremy, or Raph, played by Landon LeBoyron, who tries his best, but is really betrayed by the script in a lot of ways. So Raph stalks Sarah, outside of the, uh, the the study and causes her to quit the study as a result. Well, that and the fact that she starts to feel the sinister figures from her dreams creeping into her waking world. Although I, I should say, all of this is done in a very quiet, calm, measured way by the writer-director Anthony Scott Burns, who is quite good at directing and he has a great eye, but he needs to have someone come along who can better guide his ideas to fruition. Burns relies a lot on the images of the dreams that Sarah has. And, and they're great looking like a cross between a tool music video and Silent Hill with a bit of the video game limbo thrown in. But they do get repetitive. They mine the same imagery and the same landscape. And the fact that everyone in this movie dreams in the same monochrome first person view that is pushing into new spaces and moving forward. And after a while, it becomes a bit monotonous. It, it feels, after a while, it feels oversimplified and not fleshed out enough. Like he ran out of ideas and stuck with what he had, as opposed to exploring what different dreams people could have. It's like everyone has the same basic dream in this and it doesn't, at a certain point when you see too many of them, it doesn't feel realistic anymore. It doesn't connect. And, and that's where the movie starts to trip up. Um, there's, some, there's some spoilers ahead. Non-specific spoilers. I'm not going to get specific, but I will, I, I will talk a little bit more about this movie, more in-depth about the plot. Uh, so, heads up, some slight spoilers coming up. Things happen in this movie that, they, that don't seem to have any repercussions. The story beats just start to seem less meaningful as it goes along. 
like a lot of times, like big moments will happen and then they're never referenced again. And it's like they, the people just don't acknowledge them. Um, it's at a certain point, things go straight off the rails entirely with a spoiler, a harebrained love plot that comes out of nowhere. And it seems really wrong. Like, let me put it this way. If you're a male writer that has to have his high school age, teenage protagonist verbally say out loud in a non sequitur that she's 18 so that her hooking up with an older man isn't creepy. It's creepy, especially when said older man has stalked her, has power over her, and she is relying on him for safety and shelter. Uh, and in fact, the script goes straight into male savior territory, male fantasy territory in the later parts. It takes away Sarah's agency and it makes her completely reliant on her love interest. He actually kind of becomes the main character for the last act of the movie, and it, it, would, it would be a jarring transition, even if the third act actually had anything really meaningful happen. Instead, we have a sequence of events that don't make sense and don't really lead anywhere and cap off with a sort of climax that then leads back to a reset button. And that's, that's the most egregious thing about Come True. It's bad enough that it squanders a good concept, solid visuals and cinematography, and excellent performances. But it truly feels like Burns runs right the fuck out of ideas and goes straight to edgelord male fantasy tropes for the finale. Worse, he caps it off with, I shit you not, the worst ending I have seen in recent memory. It's, it's a big bugaboo for me when a movie can't stick the landing, but I've, I've gotten used to it over the years. As a lot of horror films just, they don't end in a satisfying way. I'm used to it. It's okay. But there's an unsatisfying conclusion, and then there's straight up elementary school fan fiction lit endings. The, the kind of endings you'd get laughed out of any writer's room for even suggesting. The, the kind of easy deus ex machina bullshit that would have people throwing popcorn at the screen and running the filmmakers out of town for if this had had any kind of significant theatrical run. The last minute of this movie is a howler of a bullshit ending that made me actually fucking mad. Like, I had wasted an hour and 45 minutes just for this dude to give me this? It's not even an original ending either, but it's, it's certainly special in that even in its unoriginality, it is particularly set apart for how much it disregards the logic of filmmaking and storytelling that it had been doing for the entire film. It just completely blows up the entire rest of the movie. You have a small little thing and it blows up the entire movie. It feels like Burns just gives up. And even the interesting but unrealized premise he gives us is too much for him to actually handle dealing with. You know, I feel like if he'd cut out even just the last 30 seconds, the very, very final, it's like three or four like little twisties at the end, the very final quote unquote twist, it would have left it it would have left the movie at a point that was kind of incomprehensible, but at least interesting and thought-provoking. Instead, he torpedoes the whole fucking ship and absolutely devastates any goodwill he might have had for the legitimately good stuff that he had the previous runtime of the movie. So, overall, do I recommend seeing Come True? Eh, if you want to see an interesting setup, some good performances, some nice 
visual filmmaking and, and a couple of scenes that do do a really good job of capturing the feeling of sleep paralysis or night terrors, then yeah, sure. But my caveat is, and it is a big one, turn this movie the fuck off about 30 seconds before the credits. You do not want to see that shit. Just go with the weird, ambiguous ending that exists before that moment. And you might walk away confused, but far more satisfied than you will if you have to experience the utter bullshit that is the actual ending of Come True. And coming up next, we have the 18th movie of 2023, De Uskildige, The Innocence from 2021. So what do you get when you cross the X-Men, or rather their kid versions, the New Mutants, with God-tier-level, moody-ass Swedish vampire movie, Let the Right One In? You get De Uskildige, a word I'm sure I'm murdering. Uh, I'll just call it The Innocence. That's what it translates to. It's a, a kids with powers movie that definitely does not take the usual approach to setting up or finishing off this not unheard of story. We've seen kids have powers before with various interpretations, uh, some with negative Lord of the Flies outlooks on what would happen if suddenly little Billy could, say, let's say, fly or shoot lasers out of his eyes or crush his parents' skulls if they were mean to him. Uh, this is a new interpretation. The four young preteens in The Innocents Okay, they can't shoot lasers or fly, but they do discover in that childlike experimental way that they each have some sort of ability to do things, whether it's telekinesis or telepathy or controlling other people's minds. They all live in this big hive-like apartment complex, which starts out almost empty. as It's apparently the summer vacation months for most families. So they only have each other to play with, and that they do. Their parents are all questionable, but never really bad parents for the most part, with one exception. But these kids are like the feral street kids of my youth when our parents would just assume we were going out to play and we'd come back around dinner time uh, before cell phones or anything like that. I mean, they have cell phones in this movie, but they barely ever use them. I remember getting into lots of truly unsafe shit at the age of these kids between like nine and 12. And it was a very different world then from the helicoptering that we see a lot of parents doing today or the reliance on video games or cell phones that the kids have to keep them entertained. These kids in this movie do the kind of amoral shit I remember kids doing in my youth. You know, throwing rocks at ant hives, tormenting cats, stepping on worms just to see what happens. These scab-eating, amoral, stunted empathy-having kids do all of that. And the innocence doesn't moralize either way about what they're doing. It just plays it cold and removed. A silent observer making you watch these kids act like children do when adults aren't watching them, counseling them, correcting them without giving you an opinion other than what you take from watching these scenes yourself. Uh, however, their actions definitely start to contextualize the later parts of the movie once the powers they inexplicably start to manifest become more powerful. You never really feel that these kids are either good or evil. All of their motivations are either selfish or selfless or done without even the particular child knowing why they did it. Um, it's, it's actually really chilling to watch some of the things that these kids do be juxtaposed with them being surprised at the emotions that they feel after doing it, or in some cases, the lack of emotions. Um, everything in The Innocence is played pretty close to the vest, and there's probably a, a criticism to be made 
that it might be a little bit too chilly and austere or that it doesn't move at a quick enough pace. Um, I found that it was true to itself, though, through its runtime. Only in a couple of instances did it feel like it stepped out of the general style it was creating. And while those moments might be sticking points for some, I, I didn't really mind them. It's certainly not a flashy superhero and supervillain movie, nor is it a big gory scare fest either. It's just a very measured meditation on the nature of children and a, kind of a steely-eyed look into a version of their worlds. In particular, it draws attention to the lack of understanding that the adults in their worlds have for them. None of the children, main character Ida, who is lonely and isolated, or her sister Anna, who is a non-verbal autistic who takes most of their parents' energy and attention and is played incredibly well. Uh, Aisha, the vitiligo-faced girl who forms a mental bond with Anna, or Ben, just brilliantly played by the insanely good for any age Sam Ashraf. He's incredible. And he's like, he's little, he's like nine. None of them truly are understood or cared for properly by their parents. It's obvious that they are loved, but it's also obvious that they aren't getting what they need from their parents. And those holes in their lives and their souls, if you will, inform a lot of the more horrific moments in the movie. And they are there. Um, a quick aside, a quick aside to say that the casting is great. Everyone feels like a real human and not a typical movie actor. And that really makes all the goings-ons much more lived in and real feeling, which is, it also makes the horror perhaps stick out a little more when it does happen. And all the horror here is also very quiet and undramatic and naturalistic too. The innocence is slow-paced and even-tempoed, and that can certainly be off-putting. I mean, even the climactic showdown has one of the most <laughs> serene, unemotional murders I've ever seen. But that chilly serenity worked for me in that it forced me to confront my own feelings about what was going on as opposed to having those emotions fed to me by the screenplay or the direction of the music but if you get chills watching the basic cruelty of humans as expressed through the casual amorality of its children like lord of the flies then the innocence will definitely send chills up your spine and it will stick in your brain as it has in mine even if I did often think of more comic booky scenarios constantly while watching it, but it's very solid and it's worth a watch if you have the patience. So check out The Innocence. Number 19, the next one on our list, Cat People from 1943. So Val Luton, producer Val Luton, has always been heralded as a thinking person's producer of horror cinema. In order to set himself apart from the Universal Monsters output, he made several movies with rival studio RKO that had horror themes, but were more nuanced and artistically presented. I mean, there were still B-movies for sure, but they had more going on than the straightforward frights of Universal's output. And the team Luton had working on his films explicitly wanted to not do many of the things that were happening in Universal movies. And they succeeded on multiple levels in Cat People, for better or for worse. First of all, the plot is a bit more modern for the time, but also a bit more convoluted. The basic premise is simple enough. It's a woman who believes she is descended from a bunch of rural Eastern European Satanists who can turn into cats, uh, do, uh, and then she thinks that she will turn into a murderous cat monster if she's ever kissed. And of course, then a dude enters the picture and hilarity ensues. Well, no, that's, that's actually when things start to get complicated because this, this is the 40s. So falling in love and getting fucking married 
is apparently totally possible without ever exchanging so much as a peck. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, somehow these two end up married and they never find out if she's a cat because he never kisses her, which doesn't make any sense. So as you would expect, at some point, the square-jawed, so American he eats apple pie on the regular hubby eventually gets bored with not getting laid by his wife and he tries to leave her for the girl next door, or rather the drafting table next door from his work. Uh, Cat Lady, as you can imagine, is not happy about this, nor is she happy that her psychiatrist, while her, who her hubby has forced her to go see, is now hitting on her and trying to forcibly check her lips-to-cat transformation ability. Uh, <laughs> so, also, perhaps understandably, Cat Lady is down to kill the interloping chick who took away her man, and maybe her man as well if he gets in her way. So if it sounds kind of pulpy and melodramatic, well, it is. But surprisingly, given the material, the Luton touch on this gives it a sheen of sophistication, and it plays much more subtly than it sounds. The most obvious scene where a large cat stalks people in a dark room is still shot in a way that you can't really tell what's happening, thanks to director Jacques Turner, 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 uh, taking the Turner taking the studio notes to show the cat and making everything more shadowy and mysterious without being too on the nose. Uh, the studio wanted to, sh to see the cat and he, Jacques did not. And the compromise that he made still kind of works. There's a few scenes of restrained horror that work better for what they don't show than what they do, proving Jacques' point. A woman being chased down a, a lonely street-lined street is a standout scene. That's one of the most famous scenes in horror. She becomes more and more alarmed as footsteps that appear to be chasing her go silent, and then she starts sticking to the pools of light as she is silently stalked by something neither she nor we can see. The tension ramps up to a fever pitch, and then it's broken by one of cinema's earliest and most famous jump scares, the Luton bus, and it's a classic. Uh, another great restrained horror scene is a woman trapped in an underground indoor swimming pool by some sort of growling, heavy-breathing creature Mm, could it be a cat that paces in the shadows, but which we never quite see? And so Luton Turner and editor Mark Robeson wring every possible bit of tension out of these scenes, and these scenes still play well today. Uh, stunning actress Simone Simon plays Irina, the cat lady, and she's perfect for the part. She's just she's the definition of kittenish, cute, playful, but with a feeling of alienness and danger that captures the oddness of her character. And you can see how someone would be smitten by her, but then also would be made crazy by her mood swings and chilliness. And apparently, in real life, the French-born Simon was a bit of a handful. She would throw temper tantrums on set and get into fights with co-stars and shouting matches with the director. But she's also the reason to watch the movie and was obviously worth the trouble because no one else stands out quite as much as she does, except for the caricature of English stiffness, Tom Conway, who is smoothly intelligent and a bit creepy as Irina's obsessive psychiatrist. You've got Kent Smith as her hubby Oliver and Jane Randolph as his office squeeze Alice. And they're just, those two are just pretty pieces of clay that pop up on screen. They're, they're serviceable, but nothing really to write home about. And they feel like the kind of plain, like, like the flat mechanized main characters you see in a lot of horror films. They're just there to be good looking and good and wholesome and, and then in danger. And they offset whatever negative actions the script throws their way. 
it's easy to empathize with Irina as a result, who is flawed, but at least isn't out to hurt anyone, at least at first, until she's given reason to. And even then, you kind of get it. And that's, that's the part of the film that really hasn't aged well. It looks great for its age. Uh, the inky black shadows and beautiful staging, it's been studied and copied a lot over the years. But the sexual mores, the way people treat each other is stiff and foreign to modern eyes and sometimes even unbelievably cruel under a veneer of kindness. It's utterly bizarre to watch a couple supposedly fall in love but barely touch. And while it's obvious that even at the time it was weird that the married couple wasn't intimate, the way that cat people goes about Oliver realizing he's unhappy with Irina in the marriage makes him pretty unlikable and entitled by today's standards. Remember, kids, if your wife doesn't put out because of her weird un-American beliefs, make sure you try to commit her to an asylum before she kills your nice, wholesome American side piece. Um, it's, it's disturbing to see that the entire movie, Arena is presented as being in the wrong when she never lies. The last line of the movie is she never lied to us. She never bullshits anybody. She was telling the truth the whole time, and the fact that she's made out to be the bad guy by the fact that her hubby doesn't believe her no one believes her, and then somehow she's the bad guy, is, it's an odd moral leap from modern eyes. Um, I don't think they were trying to make a morality tale about how you should totally boink someone before you commit to them, but if they weren't, they sure do a bang-up job of doing it. Um, it's, I, I, ha I had a problem with that aspect of the movie. It definitely took me out of a lot of scenes here where I was rooting for Irina and like everyone else in this movie sucks to her. <laughs> and maybe that's the tragic aspect that they were going for, but somehow I doubt it. Look, overall, Cat People is still very watchable, despite some howler lines and some jaw-droppingly misogynistic actions by the characters. And look, it's, it is a well-made, artistically sound piece of wartime horror cinema with some truly all-time classic scare scenes and the classiness of the production is a welcome thing to see in an era where quality and artistic flair was not always a part of the production budget for B-movies. Like I said, it's very dated in some ways, but it's also comfortingly atmospheric, and it's good to put on for a mood setter or just as a reminder that horror can be done tastefully and thoughtfully, even by the standards of the first half of the 20th century. It can also be put on as a way to remind ourselves of how far we've come as a society. <laughs> so coming up next, we go to the 80s. We go to Monster Squad from 1987. Oh, the Monster Squad. One of the great films of my young years and arguably one of the reason I have the love I have for the Universal Monsters, uh, Frankenstein in particular. So, okay, I have, I have a confession to make before we start this off. I hate the Goonies. I do. I, I'm sorry. I, I hate the movie, The Goonies. Now, I'm sure that may make some of you gasp and clutch your pearls. Lord knows I've almost lost friendships over that in the past. But The Goonies always felt lame to me. I didn't like the kids. I didn't like Sloth and the pirate treasure thing. Seemed dumb to young me. I, I wanted monsters. So I gravitated towards Monster Squad, though... To be fair, I didn't really watch it that many times, relatively speaking. Like, 
I, I just wasn't in general into stand by me clones about groups of yammering friends getting into wacky adventures. But I watched Labyrinth a lot. But for all of the, of all of the Goonies clones and similar movies, this was the one that I dug and that I found myself seeing myself the most in. So it's interesting to go back and watch Monster Squad again through adult eyes because now I watch it and it does seem really amateurish. I mean, don't get me wrong. I still love it, but boy, is, is it dumb in a lot of ways. So director Fred Decker was just coming off the far superior movie, Night of the Creeps, and he got his roommate, a young guy named Shane Black, to write up a script. Now, if that name sounds familiar, you might know Shane Black as the guy who wrote Lethal Weapon, The Last Boy Scout, a Last Action Hero, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and wrote and directed Iron Man 3. Oh, and he also punched up and acted in a little movie called Predator. So Shane has a penchant for snippy quick dialogue and big action set pieces, as you might know from his other work. And all of those are present here. The gaggle of misfit kids all speak in sharp one-liners and 80s slang, and the movie breathlessly moves from one scene to the next, partly as a result of Decker cutting out nearly 60 pages of script and partly from the studio trimming the movie down even further by 13 minutes so that it would stick to the hour and a half runtime that many at the thought uh, the time thought was the sweet spot for any non-Oscar bait movie. So as a result, a lot of these scenes feel rushed. Relationships and characters feel underdeveloped or one note, and oftentimes I felt the pace of the movie was haphazard. And an additional problem is the kid actors don't, as a whole, have the experience or skill to handle half the dialogue they're given. And it's shocking to adult me how wooden or forced a lot of the dialogue feels now. It's not uncommon for 80s movie movies. Like, this was, this was the acting of the time. Um, but this is just how it seems now. The, wo the words are funny when you think about it, but a lot of times the timing is off or the pacing is wrong. And sometimes the words aren't funny as well. I mean, there's some rough language in here that goes beyond the PG-13 rating into the, oh, you can't say that word anymore kind of territory, which, I mean, at the time, saying that kind of stuff was just showing that they were, you know, edgy, modern kids, but it sticks out like a sore thumb now. It makes it hard to want to show this movie to the kids of today, since there are parts that are definitely not kid-friendly. And... As funny and titillating as catching your friend's teenage sister changing was in the 80s, uh, nowadays, including a scene where a 14-year-old takes pictures of a 16-year-old and blackmails her into revealing if she's had sex or not would be uh, risky to put in a movie at best. It just it just plays differently, you know, and, and, and it's easy to say, oh, that's just how it was, but... You know, when you look through modern eyes, you look how modern kids would take it. It's it's definitely it stands out. It it plays different. Uh, in addition to that, there are moments that are clumsy in terms of action. Right. These are children. It's an 80s movie. I get it. They get the better of the monsters on several occasions. And I know I know that sounds nitpicky and maybe it is. But when you see Dracula punch a hole in a wall but then not be able to pull a mystic amulet out of a scrawny, nerdy kid's hands, it just kind of stretches the line of believability a bit. No, no, no. Why is Mummy in Eugene's closet at, at one point? Why does Mummy then bolt as much as a stiff, dusty Mummy can, you know? Why does he 
why what is what is his point of being there why doesn't gilman attack when they drop the twinkie in the water it's it's childish logic it didn't really work for me then but it but it wasn't as stand out for me as it is now um i might have picked up on it as a kid but i just i let it slide but now i'm being nitpicky and i'm not being i'm not being any fun i'm sorry the the monsters overall are pretty awesome though look dracula is played by statuesque former figure skater duncan regere and he's still one of my favorite Draculas visually. He's got the height and poise of a Christopher Lee, the chiseled features and presence of a John Carradine. I mean, he lacks the weirdness of Lugosi, but damn, if he isn't just a striking, powerful-feeling vampire, daddy. Mm, mm, mm. As good as he is, it's hard not to salivate over the idea of the first alternate casting for the role if he'd gotten the part, because that alternate for the part of Dracula was none other than a young Liam Neeson. What could have been? Frankenstein is also a standout in design and performance. It's Tom Noonan, the red dragon killer from Manhunter in the big boots here. And although his pants sometimes look weirdly like a dress, the facial prosthetics sell his sewn together zombie nature, but also his sad sensitivity and this regal humanity to the character as, as, as well as any design in history. I love the Frankenstein in this movie. Uh, Wolfman, who, say it with me now, has nards, uh, <laughs> is a bit more, he's a bit more of a mixed bag. Uh, the quick transformation scene that we do get from him in a phone booth is, it's underwhelming in a post-American werewolf in London world and, and the howling world, and the design of his weird, bug-eyed, unexpressive face is kind of laughable. Although, I should be careful saying that, as apparently it's modeled off of Stan Winston himself's face, which... Once you see that, you can never unsee it. And it's just, it's, it's, it's just not good. Uh, Mummy is similarly uninspiring. He's a skinny little corpse in rags. And when he gets his just desserts, it's just as unremarkable as his design. But the Gill Man, or the Creature from the Black Lagoon knockoff, is another standout. Its face is super, isn't super impressive or mobile, but the full bodysuit is very cool and impressive looking. And even though Stan Winston Studios gets the credit for the monster work in this movie, each monster was done individually by assigned groups. And Matt Rose and Steve Wang did the Gilman suit for this, work which would see them come aboard Predator later that year to save that film from its own monster trouble and to create the iconic full body suit that Kevin Peter Hall wore in that film. So let me be, let me be clear. Despite all the griping I had about Monster Squad, I fucking love Monster Squad. It is prime 80s goofball action fun. It doesn't require you to think too hard, and it's got versions of all the universal monsters in it. Why are they all working together? Why do they seem to accidentally drop in right where they needed to be, which is apparently Baton Rouge by way of Burbank? Uh, why does Wolfman have Nards but not Gilman? Man, shut up and eat more popcorn. It, it's what I was telling myself this whole watch through. As adult me tried to spoil it for little kid me, deep down inside me, who is still sitting there giggling at the dork jokes and the pratfalls, going, oh, at the cute dog and the absolutely badass and wonderful five-year-old little sister. And I, little me was having a blast watching all the awesome, awesome monsters wreak havoc on a small town. To this day, Dracula's long walk of death, where he kills half the police force without breaking stride, is one of the coolest damn things little me has ever seen. And the cool kid taking his cigarette, which we never really know how a 14-year-old gets a cigarette, he takes his smoke and his bow and arrow, and he walks out into the street like an old Western to take on all three of Dracula's brides at once. 
little me was doing backflips. So yeah, despite all of the grumbling that adult me was making watching this movie, you know what? Kid me's just got one thing to say. I'm still in the goddamn club. And finally for this week, number 21, Evil Dead Rise from 2023, earlier this year. So Evil Dead Rise is a spiritual successor to the legendary Evil Dead franchise. Not even spiritual, it's a straight up successor. It's made by all the same guys. Uh, but that franchise has been stop, start at best over the years, and it's never really had a consistent direction. So that's why I say it's kind of a spiritual successor. It's just the next move in that franchise. Sam Raimi created it back in 1981 when he directed the super low budget but wildly inventive first film in the series, Evil Dead, which was one of the first real cabin in the woods horror films. It created a lot of the staples of that style despite being Raimi's first film and shot on 16 millimeter on a budget of around $300,000, which was actually kind of a lot. Uh, Raimi's mad filmmaking style created the Evil Dead Cam, achieved by attaching a camera to a two by four and having two crew members run at breakneck speed through the woods, with the final film being sped up to achieve an effect of something monstrous flying along through the trees. People have been using that ever since. Evil Dead, was a serious, grim affair, full of terrifying moments and copious gore, and although it looks as roughshod as it actually was. No one really knew what they were doing on this set, but it's clear that there was a massive amount of talent in Raimi and his star and childhood friend, Bruce Campbell, who worked together on this film and co-produced that film and many of the other films they worked on since. Raimi has also consistently cast Bruce in his films as he became a big Hollywood director, attempting to make him Darkman before the studio insisted on Liam Neeson, another Liam Neeson reference on the show, and uh, giving him cameos, giving Bruce cameos or featured guest roles in other movies, including the Spider-Man films, uh, Quick and the Dead, or Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Bruce has been in all of them. Uh, so Raimi had the unique idea of continuing the film series that brought him to the dance in Evil Dead 2 in 1987, which was less of a sequel and more of a comedy remake of the first Evil Dead movie. And here's where Bruce Campbell really shines in this movie. It's one of the greatest horror comedies of all time, full stop, I know y'all hear me. It's got some physical slapstick in it that I think rag ranks up there with some of Jim Carrey's best antics. Uh, Bruce is absolutely off the rails in this film, and he never, I don't think, got his flowers for it, and it's a tragedy. The next film in the series goes completely off the rails with Bruce Campbell's Ash Williams being thrown back in time at the end of Evil Dead 2 and winding up in the mythical medieval ages in the completely ridiculous but tons of fun Army of Darkness. Completely ridiculous. La 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 la. This film totally takes the series way out of its horror origins with lots of gore and splatstick, but all played for laughs as opposed to chills. Ash himself went from a halfway realistic hero in Evil Dead 2 to a complete cartoon in Army of Darkness, shooting off ridiculous lines and dispatching deadites with his boomstick and chainsaw arm with a sneer and a jutting jaw, and of course, away with the chicks, despite being a complete doofus. Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness are fucking amazing movies, and they really showcase how much fun Raimi can be at his best, and also what an absolute star 
Bruce Campbell is, even if the studios never really got his appeal or talent. But they were a big departure from the horror of Evil Dead 1. And after having a couple decades in the Hollywood system, Raimi had himself a taste for blood again. And so in 2013, he tapped Fede Alvarez to direct a remake and reimagining of the original Evil Dead, which would bring the series back to its terrifying horror roots. Fede was, at the time, an unknown Uruguayan filmmaker with only some short films to his name. How the fuck Sam Raimi saw his potential just speaks to the dude's uncanny understanding of how film works. But Fede knocked his Evil Dead out of the park. It's far and away the most visually stunning film in the franchise, and also the most brutal, with some absolutely jaw-dropping gore and bodily destruction, and some updated scares that are truly unbelievably terrifying, especially in the unrated director's cut, which is the only version to watch. I admit, I didn't like it. In fact, I was straight mad at it when it came out because of the ways that it changed and tweaked the early movies. I didn't have a problem with them making Ash into Mia and making her a woman, but I felt like the storytelling was illogical in places and it had the wrong characters doing the wrong things and that it lacked the feeling of utter chaos that Raimi's deadites had. Alvarez's evil forces, I thought, were too one-dimensional and straightforward. And while I, I still think they could have made the supernatural stuff even more outlandish, I now absolutely adore this movie for its visuals and utter intensity not to mention the absolutely bonkers finale in a literal rain of blood. Basically, I just overthought it when I first saw it, and I failed to just enjoy the movie for the fact that it was still Evil Dead, but it was its own thing. And it's a wildly entertaining movie if you sit back and enjoy the thrills and the insanity. So the, Ev the Evil Dead remake was a success financially, but not overwhelmingly so. And Raimi, Alvarez, and Campbell, for some reason, had a decade of indecision as to where to go next. Would they make a sequel to the remake? Or go back and find out what happened to Bruce Campbell's Ash at the end of Army of Darkness? Or start something completely new? The answer turned out to be a bit of both of the latter two, with the Ash vs. Evil Dead becoming a TV series that ran for four seasons before Bruce retired from the role, and then Evil Dead Rise rebooting the story this year, under new Irish writer-director Lee Cronin, whose only other major credit is the horror film Hole in the Ground, which I've had on my radar for a couple of years but haven't gotten around to. And I, I have to get around to it now because I'm happy to report that Evil Dead Rise is a fucking blast, and it's a worthy Evil Dead movie to boot. I went into it having learned my lessons from the Evil Dead remake, and I just allowed myself to enjoy this movie for being over-the-top, cartoonish horror with a vicious glee for ridiculously gory set pieces. And good lord, is it that. Right out of the gate, we get a cute twist on the evil dead cam, straight into an absolutely brutal introduction to the havoc the deadites can wreak, before jumping back in time a few days and heading to, of all places, Los Angeles, which is an interesting shift from the forest locations we've had in every other evil dead movie, except the completely removed army of darkness. Evil Dead Rise takes place in a condemned L.A. high-rise apartment building, which is not an uncommon sight in the shadier areas of L.A., but which certainly doesn't house the kind of characters that we get in this movie. Uh, we have a single mom's family with the cutesy bickering kids and her irresponsible newly pregnant sister as our protagonists, 
and their quirky but inoffensive neighbors to round out the future body count. And I could bitch about how shallow the family characters are built, how that, but that would violate my rule about sitting back and enjoying the violence and the chaos, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, the, the kids find the evil book from every Evil Dead movie, and sure enough, the evil incantations get spoken, and then, of course, the shit hits the fan. Mom gets possessed, people start to die. Holy shit, do they ever die. There is no plot armor for people in this film, and I was pleasantly surprised at how brutal and unflinching this movie was at many points, the way an Evil Dead movie should be. So the mom is played by Alyssa Sutherland, who you may know from her badass turn on Vikings or as Eve on Spike's version of The Mist. She's fucking great and spends most of the movie as one of the most amazing possessed deadites the series has ever seen. Her sister is played by Lily Sullivan, another Aussie who has been mostly in underseen Australian horror, but she steps up big here as the movie's analog for Ash. No funny one-liners here though, couple, couple minor ones. This movie is mostly played straight as an arrow, Although you can tell that Cronin has Raimi's glee for bloody destruction and big horror set pieces that tweak the audience's ability to watch some of the grossest shit that you can do in a mass market horror movie. This movie is already legendary for its cheese grater scene. And apparently the moment was so iconic that they even had a cheese grater themed European premiere party with flower displays coming out of cheese grater vases. <laughs> It's definitely a stomach-churning and cringe-inducing scene. And if you don't jump and go, Ah, fuck! <laughs> then you are a stronger horror viewer than me. Uh, ooh. Uh, there are a lot of callbacks to old Evil Dead movies, though perhaps too many and some are too precious, like you know George Lucas having to put I have a bad feeling about this into every prequel of Star Wars. But overall, they're pretty offensive. And honestly, the Dead by Dawn scene in particular works great regardless of its callback moment status. There's even a great homage to The Shining that you see coming, but then that is so well done that it's still, it's more thrilling than it is eye-rolling. It's pretty cool. If I had one gripe, it's that the movie takes its foot off the pedal a little bit too much too often. And while I get wanting to let the movie breathe a bit, I think that it could have done without being just, I could it could have been a bit more relentless, but that's again, that's pretty nitpicky, y'all. I, I, I've said I was just gonna sit back and enjoy it. This movie is really fun overall, and once it gets rolling, it is nice and grisly, and even manages to end, as all Evil Dead movies should, with our main characters literally soaked in blood with a fucking chainsaw in hand. It definitely follows the tropes of the 2013 Evil Dead more than the 80s predecessors, and I think that's a good thing for modern audiences who will connect more with these more up-to-date sensibilities. Uh, Evil Dead Rise was a huge financial success in the theaters, holding off movies like Super Mario Brothers and Guardians of the Galaxy Part 3. It pulled in nearly $150 million worldwide, which makes it the highest-grossing Evil Dead movie to date, which means Cronin is already talking sequels, and after seeing what he's done with Evil Dead Rise... Even if I don't think he quite got to Fede Alvarez's level of filmic mastery, I'm still really happy with where he's taken the Evil Dead franchise after all these years, and I'm excited to see where he, Sam Raimi, and Bruce Campbell take the series next after Evil Dead Rise. And that, 
ladies and gentlemen, brings us to the conclusion of episode three of season six of Horror Palooza. It has been a fun ride so far. I've seen some really great movies and some pretty bad ones too. Uh, <laughs> so I got my second foreign film in this year, uh, this, this week, excuse me, with The Innocents. Uh, I caught up on a lot of my quotas for movies from various decades. Uh, let's see. Yeah, no, I still have my work cut out for me. I've only got 10 films left to go. Next week is the big finale. I will have 10 movies to talk about. So come on back then. In the meantime, you know the deal. Follow me on Instagram at Sir Ian Dangerous. Like, share, subscribe, all of that good stuff. Thanks for joining me today. And of course, I will see you next week right here on...